right, Exodus chapter 8. We left off in the 15th verse, and at this point in time, remember, God has been speaking uh, to Pharaoh uh, through the deliverer, Moses, that he has raised and called uh, to go and to set the children of Israel free from their bondage there in Egypt. And uh, Moses has been sent to Pharaoh to speak to him on behalf of Uh, of God's heart that he would let the people go that they might serve him in the wilderness and of course remember God told Moses prior even to his going to Pharaoh's presence that Pharaoh was going to be obstinate that he's going to be hard-hearted but yet through that process of Pharaoh's resistance and refusal to let the people go that God would show his wonders that God even through that would reveal himself he would demonstrate his power he would seek to reveal himself to the Egyptians to reveal himself to Pharaoh himself as well as to the children of Israel as God was displaying his power through these repeated plagues that he would seek to bring against Pharaoh and against the people of Egypt to try and soften his heart, to try and humble him, to get him to relinquish the stubbornness in his own heart. We saw last time together the first two of these plagues where God, remember, turned the Nile River to blood as well as we saw that the Lord brought a plague of frogs upon the land. And remember, there were frogs throughout the households, in the bedrooms, in the kitchens. And and again, remembering, as we said last time, that God bringing these plagues, they weren't just arbitrary things that God was doing in the sense that God sort of, uh, as a reactionary sense, saying, well, oh yeah, well, how about this? God was actually specifically sending the plagues that he was, and we'll see as we go through, because these plagues corresponded with particular gods that the Egyptians worshipped. We said last time the Egyptians... Uh, worshipped, I believe it was somewhere over like 80 plus different deities. Even Pharaoh himself was considered to be divine as a god uh, among the people. And these specific plagues that God was bringing were also judgments against the idolatrous uh, worship systems in Egypt and the gods they worshipped. They worshipped the Nile River. Uh, They worshipped gods connected to some of the different plagues that we'll see as we go through tonight. So God has brought those first two plagues against them. The plagues come in sets of three, the first nine plagues anywhere, the last plague being the plague of the firstborn. And the first two plagues in the three uh, sets of three are announced. The third plague comes unannounced. Uh, And we see that same pattern with the third, the sixth, and the ninth plague. So we pick up here in verse 16 with the third plague coming now. And notice it comes unannounced. It just tells us that the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your rod and strike the dust of the land so that it may become lice throughout all the land of Egypt. Now, this is one of those plagues that, you know, of all of them to me, that just, oh, goodness, I just, I can't even imagine. Your translation may render that uh, gnats. Uh, some translations render or think the term could refer um, to fleas. I don't know if any of them sound much better. If somebody was trying to soften what the Hebrew word really means there, a plague of gnats, a plague of fleas, or a plague of lice, none of them sound pleasant and enjoyable. Uh, notice, and they did so, verse 17, for Aaron stretched out his hand with his rod 
struck the dust of the earth, and it became lice on man and beast. All Listen to what it says. All the dust of the land became lice throughout all the land of Egypt. Now, no doubt this was, again, a judgment against one of their gods, Set, I believe the name was, which was the god of the desert. And you know what that terrain was like in the culture there in Egypt, a lot of desert-like area, lots of sand. And I bring that to your attention because take notice of what the Bible's telling us, and the Bible never exaggerates. It literally says, the end of verse 17, it's repeated, all the dust of the land became lice throughout Egypt. So I want you to envision all the sand all of a sudden, and then miraculously as God performs this plague, all of a sudden the dust and the sand, it all just begins to move, and it transitions to lice, and it says that it was lice literally throughout the whole land, and the lice went on man and beast. Now, you know, any of you who've raised children, or maybe when you were growing up, uh, if you've ever done the lice process, <laughs> you know, I guarantee you probably two minutes from now, I'm going to see one or two people kind of going like this. And even when you, you know how that works. Even when you talk about it, all of a sudden, you just, oh, your head just starts getting a little itchy. And I mean, praise the Lord, nowadays they have those, you know, the shampoos, and you got to get the special comb, and you got to get all the little nits out of there. I mean, it is a process. If you have kids, you know, your kids from a playground or, you know, the school system or even a, you know, Sunday school class sometimes, one of the little kiddos has lice and then it spreads around and it's going to be a really challenging, difficult thing just to get a small, uh, you know, localized problem with maybe one of your children or two of your children. And here you're talking about the whole land, the ground just starts moving around and all the beasts and everyone uh, dealing with the condition of lice. I mean, the misery of what this must have been like to have to deal with, again, whether it was fleas or lice, I don't think either one is much better and the incredible irritation that must have been, and particularly, again, not only was it a confrontation of the god that they, one of the gods that they worship, but on top of that, just the realization that the Egyptians were known to be sort of obsessive about their hygiene so that they were ceremonially clean before their gods. That's why a lot of times you'll see the Egyptians, you see pictures of them. A lot of times their heads were shaved. They were a people known in that ancient culture to obsess upon their hygiene, their etiquette, their appearance, the way that they looked. So for them to have something like an outbreak of lice all over themselves, I mean, the priests, the people, how they would all be defiled and just the incredible irritation and misery this would bring, plaguing the people of the land. Now look at verse 18. Now the magicians, remember, these are uh, Pharaoh's wise men, his cabinet members, the you know, the magicians, the sorcerers. He has men in his palace and his empire who were able, being in touch with the demonic powers, to perform some of the same uh, wonders from the first two plagues. Again here, notice the magicians worked with their dark magic, their enchantments, to bring forth lice, but they could not. So there were lice on man and beast. So again, these magicians, with their dark magic and demonic enchantments, they try and replicate the plague, to show that they have just as much power as this God that Moses and Aaron represent. And look what they're doing. They're trying to bring about more lice. I mean, it just goes to show you the, the lunacy 
and the misery of anything that the devil and demonic powers do. If anything, you're thinking, wait a minute, why wouldn't you want to bring relief? But see, the devil's not in the business of bringing relief to anyone. The only thing the devil wants to do with his power and activity is make people's lives more miserable. The devil wants to take a miserable situation and to make it more miserable. God's the one who's in the business of relieving misery, like we read in Psalm 107, where people are in distress, they're at their wit's end. That, that, that statement comes from the Bible, it's in the Psalms. They were at their wit's end. Uh, it's amazing how many Bible phrases trace back, you trace them to what we say. God's the one who is in the business of giving relief. Here, they're trying to produce more lice. Thankfully, finally, notice this plague they could not replicate. Somehow they were able to do something similar with the turning the, the water to blood and with the producing of the frogs. But in this situation, now they're, they're, they find that they are up against a god whose power so far outranks them that they can't replicate this miracle, which shows, again, the limitations. Does the devil have power? Yes. But the devil is no equal to God. He may be able to do supernatural wonders and signs, and we talked about that last time, but his power is nothing in comparison to the power of Almighty God. They could not replicate this miracle in any way, this wonder, and the magicians, notice, they even bring that to Pharaoh's attention. They, they say to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them, just as the Lord had said. So they go to Pharaoh, and they say, Pharaoh, let's be real clear here. The power that is representative in Moses and Aaron, who represent this Yahweh God, uh, that's like major league, and we're like double uh, A minor leagues, or, or way below that here. I mean, we are nowhere. Near, this is the finger of God. And again, when you think about the power that's being displayed, that's the finger of God. What's the hand of God capable to do? What's the arm of the Lord the Bible talks about? This is the finger of God. Interesting, this same statement, the finger of God referring to God's power, is a statement that Jesus picks up and uses in uh, Luke chapter 11, where they're telling Jesus he's casting out demons by Beelzebub, the lord of the flies, this demonic power in that day. And, and, and Jesus says, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, and he uses the same phraseology from the book of Exodus here, he quotes, indicating that, again, he was casting out demons in the days of his earthly ministry and he says, by the finger of God. Again, it goes to show you the comparison. Though the devil's powerful, we're no match for Satan. No match for Satan. But Satan is no match whatsoever for God. Again, demons, which are way more powerful than us, and the finger of God is able to cast. Jesus could cast out a demon with the finger of God because of how much more power and authority he has. That's why John in his writing says, he who is in us is greater than he who's in the world. And we have that assurance. Yes, we should be cautious, real, but, but we hide behind the authority of Jesus. And he who is in us is greater than he who's in the world. And we have that assurance. Our Father is much stronger and our Jesus is much more powerful. And they recognized this in Pharaoh's court that day when they couldn't replicate this particular uh, uh, supernatural event and the lord said to moses again because pharaoh notice verse 19 has again hardened his heart i believe it's the third or fourth time now we read he hardens his heart 
rather than submitting when he sees God's power. The Lord said to Moses, rise early in the morning, stand before Pharaoh as he comes out to the water. And again, he would go down to the Nile River there, not for bathing, not for drinking. These were ceremonial, idolatrous worship practices, why he would be going down to the Nile. So go down to the Nile in the morning, confront him again, and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. Take notice, again, God's repeating his message and God's not changing his message. This is a great reminder because when God has something to say and God's declared something or God's asking something, God will continue to repeat his message when he seeks to speak to a person. And he will repeatedly say the same thing and say the same thing. And here's something else about God. When God speaks and God wants to convey something, God won't change his message. Even if we're not submitting to it, God's not going to change his message. The gospel is the gospel. A person is saved when they recognize they're a sinner and they realize that the blood and sacrifice of Jesus Christ dying on the cross for their sins and his resurrection from the dead and belief upon that is the only way to get into heaven, that their salvation is found in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Listen, that message isn't going to change. Well, I don't like that message. That's not my way to get to heaven. Well, listen, God's not going to change his message. A person can be stubborn like Pharaoh and hard in their heart and resist the gospel. And, well, I don't like, that's too, you know, that's, that's too exclusive. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I mean, that's a little narrow-minded, isn't it? Well, my answer to that is always, look, I'm not the one that, Jesus is narrow-minded. I'm not, I'm just telling you what Jesus said. If you want to wrestle that out with Jesus, you can. I don't think you're going to get Jesus to change his mind. I don't think Jesus is going to say to you, well, look, if you don't like that message, maybe, all right, I'll, I'll accommodate for you because you, you're, no, his message is his message. And you notice this with Pharaoh. You keep hearing it's the same message. Pharaoh, the message isn't changing. And for you and I, we should always remember that. When God says something to us, his message isn't going to change. And what God's word says is never going to change. The message of God's word about sin about anything, it's the same. It's always going to be the same. Our responsibility is to humble ourselves and be submitted to what God says. And when we don't, and we just harden our hearts, we just bring plague upon pain, upon problem, upon difficulty, upon ourselves and those we're connected to when we resist like Pharaoh does. So look, let my people go, verse 20, that they may serve me. Look at verse 21, these first two words, or else. Now, that is not something you want God to say to you. You never want to hear God say, or else. That's never a good thing when God, that's the God's next two words to you, or else. If you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies. Now, in my Bible, the word flies there is in italics, which means that that's inserted by the translators, and that term isn't actually in the original language. That's why it's in italics. The term in the Hebrew there is swarms. And now the translators insert flies. It could be swarms really of any type of insect again. But again, what one would be more miserable than flies? Or it could be flies and other things. Uh, many historians believe it's a reference to what they call like a dog fly or if you think of like horse flies or something, you know, like just there are different types of flies that are just big and nasty. In fact, Psalm 78, when it refers to uh, these flies in this particular plague refers to them as devouring insects. And the idea literally is biting insects that actually bite or sting. So these were nasty flies. They weren't just like 
the nuisance kind of flies that you're brushing off your pizza on the boardwalk or something because it's grossing you out or trying to get on your hamburger at a barbecue. These are the kind of flies, you know, the ones that it's almost like they got a set of teeth on them when they feel like it took a chunk out of your skin. They bite. They're painful. So these flies come in and they're biting and devouring the people, causing pain and affliction. Swarms of flies are about to come. He says, the houses of the Egyptians shall be full. Imagine your house full of swarms of flies and also the ground on which you stand. Now, if you're anything like me, I get one fly in my house and I am like on a hunting mission until that thing is executed, right? One fly. That doesn't even bite. Just imagine swarms, swarms of biting, stinging flies in your house of the Egyptians as well as all around the ground. And in that day, verse 22, God says, I will set apart the land of Goshen. Now remember, the land of Goshen was what? It was the land that the children of Israel lived in. That was the land God gave to them, the land of Goshen. And look what God's doing here. God is showing distinction now. Again, he's demonstrating his power. He's revealing who he is. God says, in that day, when I bring the swarms of flies, this plague of flies, in that day, I'm going to set apart the land of Goshen in which my people dwell, that no swarms of flies shall be there. So God says, here's what's going to happen. When I bring this plague, this swarm of flies into Egypt, he says, I'm going to actually isolate one area, just the land of Goshen, and no flies went or over into that area. You know, one of them said before, this is the first no-fly zone. I know that's kind of corny, but it's... Yeah. I mean, pun... I know it's dumb, but you, know, you like stuff like that. you got to take advantage once in a while when you get through the... Imagine the reality of this, though. God brings swarms of flies. How does he isolate flies to just not cross over the barrier from this particular location over to Goshen? They, they just stop there. And, and they don't go over there. You want to talk about God controlling everything? The creator God controlling everything? You want to talk about power manifested? That God says that these little tiny flies, look, do, don't you dare cross into Goshen. You stay out of Goshen. You can fly anywhere you want in Egypt. You can bite anybody you want, but do not go to Goshen and do not bite my people. <laughs> I mean, amazing. Talk about God being able to show distinction, the power of God his capability, I mean, his control over all things, even the tiniest things like where flies fly, if he wants to, that he has the ability to, to make those distinctions and differentiate where judgment comes, where it doesn't come. He makes the ability to differentiate upon who judgment comes and who judgment does not come. And notice judgment is coming upon the ungodly and judgment is not coming upon his children. That's what we see. God says they will not come upon people. Notice again why verse 22, in order that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the land. Again, God was doing this because he wanted to reveal himself. You don't think this would astonish people? God said, I'm trying to show myself to you. I'm using everything possible to try and reveal myself to Pharaoh. I want him to know who I am. I want him to humble and submit I want the Egyptians to know me. I want my own people to see more of who I am. God's doing all these things. He's a God of revelation. In order that you may know that I am Yahweh, the true God, in the midst of the land. Verse 23, And I will make a difference between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall be. 
I'll make a difference between my people and your people. I like this. It shows me the heart and the nature of God, his character. And we see this as we study through the word of God, that this is the heart and the way of the Lord, where God will make a difference between his people and those who are not his people. Here God is bringing judgment and God makes a distinction between the judgment falling upon those who are not his, the judgment falling upon those who aren't his people and the judgment not falling on those who are his people he makes that differentiation and 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 I think that is the heart of the lord and I see that myself personally that same thread running throughout the word of god again the bible tells us in the new testament as christians that we're not appointed to wrath but to obtain salvation god's wrath was poured out on jesus christ if there's more wrath that still needs to come upon me, then that makes me have to question, well, wait a minute, I thought all the wrath for my sin was poured out upon Jesus, and he absorbed that. So if he absorbed all the wrath, why do I have to experience more wrath and be subject to wrath in the last days? I believe that God is going to make a distinction. I believe God's wrath will come upon the Christ-rejecting world and those who did not embrace what Jesus Christ did for them, yes, the, the wrath of God is upon them. They are children of wrath because they don't have the covering and the deliverance and salvation that Jesus provided. And again, for God to judge us again after he already judged Jesus for our sin would be for God to show no distinction between those who are his children and those who are not. And here you see God, this miraculous thing in this plague, no flies in Goshen, but yet flies plaguing the whole rest of the land. And the Lord did so, verse 24, thick swarms of flies came into the house, it says, of Pharaoh, into his servants' houses, into all the land of Egypt. The land was corrupted because of the swarms of flies. And that term corrupted there, and the idea here seems to almost indicate that on top of these things, you know, painfully biting people that they could have been, you know, you know, planting their little eggs and larvae and, you know, the whole maggot issue. And, and ponder, you have dead frogs, remember, from the prior uh, plague being around and the decay and the stench of all those dead frogs. I mean, you're talking about a really gross experience here, the misery that God was allowing to try and awaken these people to where they needed to make changes in their lives to turn and cry out to him. Verse 25, Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God in the land. Now it almost looks like Pharaoh is starting to break down a little bit or maybe starting to humble himself a little bit this moment because he's saying, Look, okay, fine, you can go, but look what he does. He says, Go, sacrifice to your God but I have the last three words circled, in the land. What did God tell them? Let my people go that they may serve me. Let them go three days journey out into the wilderness. And Pharaoh here is saying, okay, you can go. But he's, what he's doing, he's proposing a compromise now. He's saying, you can obey the Lord, but, but, but not fully. And this is the first of four compromises that Pharaoh proposes to the people of God at this point. And again, Egypt is a type and a picture of the world. Pharaoh, of course, in many ways is a typology and a picture of this evil king of, of Satan, the god of this age, uh, the wicked ruler uh, of the evil realm. And this is exactly what the devil wants to do for us. He proposes compromises to us. And he wants to propose to us compromises for the word of God, compromises for what God's will and plan is for life. And he says things like that to us. He says, look, okay, you can go, but... But 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 stay in the land. You, know, you 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 can go, but but stay in the world. Again, to go out of the land of Egypt, 
what have been into the wilderness was what it was a matter of separation and what he's saying is you are you can do this thing but make sure you stay connected to egypt here don't separate yourself kind of just make you can add you can add god into what you're doing but don't don't make a complete separation i mean don't completely break away from egypt and the world and go serve god i mean just mingle them together do both and this is what the devil wants us to do all right yeah you can add god to your life but i mean don't go getting radical and like disconnecting from the world system and and living for the kingdom of god just kind of put a little god into your life and he wants us to live a compromised life he doesn't want us to separate ourselves and to really be sold out for the lord and he proposes these kind of compromises for us in similar ways as christians and moses said very wisely it is not right for us to do so to do what to compromise it's not right for us to compromise what we should do is give god complete obedience it's not right for us to do so for we would be sacrificing as well the abomination of the egyptians to the lord our god if we sacrifice the abomination of the egyptians before their eyes then they will they not stone us we will go three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the lord our god as he will command us moses says two things first of all listen god has commanded us to do something very specific and we want to obey god completely fully specifically is exactly as his word says we don't want to give god half-hearted obedience we don't want to obey God 50% of the way. We don't want to obey God and try and live a, a dual life of living in the world and trying to live for God at the same time. We're in this world, but not of this world. God calls us to separation, not to love the world and the things of the world, but to set our mind on things above. And Moses says here, no, we want to be obedient to God. And secondarily, he says, even just practically, that won't work. He says, if we sacrifice here in the land... The Egyptians consider all the animals we would sacrifice sacred. They worship all these animals. And if we start slaughtering and sacrificing animals here, the Egyptians are going to stone us because it will be like sacrilege before them. And I, th I think this is just a very pertinent reminder that sometimes as Christians, we buy into the lie of the devil that it actually would work out better if we kind of compromised and tried to blend with the world and, and do the undercover Christianity thing and, and, and don't completely separate ourselves and, and try and you know be the, the, the cool, like we have the cool ghost instead of the Holy Ghost. You know, we're kind of just trying to be so relevant. And you know what? Here's the deal. It doesn't work. It doesn't work anyway. To comp a compromised Christian life doesn't work in Egypt and in the world anyway. Because you know what people do? People will stone you and kill you for your compromised hypocritical testimony. You have no testimony. And your testimony won't be strong. Your testimony will be weak. And people will just cast stones of condemnation at you and say, you're a hypocrite. Why would I want to be that? Why would I want to claim to be a Christian and get drunk just like you? Why claim to be a Christian? I just... I just want to get drunk. You go worship once and then get drunk once. I'll just get drunk twice. I mean, you see what I'm saying? It doesn't work out. Compromise never works. And the same here with Moses. He says, look, this wouldn't work what you're asking us to do. Verse 28, Pharaoh says, well, I'll tell you what. I'll let you go that you may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only, he says, you shall not go very far away and intercede for me. Here's compromise number two. 
He says, okay, I, I see what you're saying. I'll let you go, but he says, but, but just don't go, don't go too far. And isn't that exactly what the devil often says to us many times? Here, the idea of the compromise is the issue of, of don't go to extremes. And don't, don't go overboard with it. Okay, you can, you can serve the Lord. You can follow Jesus. But don't, don't go too far with that thing. I mean, don't go start reading your Bible like every day, like one of those Bible thumbs. Every day you're going to go too far. I'm going to go to church on Sunday. Right? I mean, Sunday and Wednesday? You, Wednesday night you're going to go now too? Don't go too far. You're going to go to a prayer meeting on top of that? I mean, that's like three times a week you go and do this worship God thing. Or or don't go too far. We actually start serving the Lord. And and, and and that's exactly what the devil wants to tell us. Well, I mean, just don't don't go to an extreme with that Christian walk thing. And doesn't... Who's not heard that from a relative after you get saved or a friend or whatever? I mean, you're a little too radical with this thing. I understand you want to be spiritual, have a relationship with God, but don't, don't go too far with that. That, that. That's a compromise. That's a lie of the devil. Jesus said to us, look, if any man come after me, deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Jesus says if you're not willing to you know, lose your life, you'll never find the real life that God has for you. You've got to be willing to go all the way. I don't know there is any other way. The only way is all the way. All in. 100%. That's what the Lord desires for us. And we've got to protect ourselves from this compromise of the devil and his lying voice like Pharaoh here. Let's finish up these last few verses here. We'll have to cap off time-wise. It says, Then Moses said, Indeed, I'm going out from you, and I will entreat the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart tomorrow from Pharaoh, from his servants and his people. But let Pharaoh not deal deceitfully anymore in letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and entreated the Lord. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. He removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants and from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh, here it is again, hardened his heart. At this time also, neither would he let the people Go. Notice two final things with him here. First of all, notice again this repetition of Pharaoh continuously hardening his heart. And how does it work? When Pharaoh's dealing with the difficulty, when he's you know having problems and the pain and the pressure of one of the plagues is on, and he's you know all you know just under the duress of it, he kind of shows a little bit of Look, whatever takes relief, man, whatever. Pray for me and treat the Lord for me. That's what you hear him saying. And then as soon as there's a little bit of relief, shows that there's no sincerity in his commitment at all, right? He, he reneges on everything in regards to his indication of pray for me, right? Yeah, okay. Because what's his perspective? His perspective is all he wants God for is crisis relief in his life. He has no interest in really living for God or serving God. Pharaoh, just insincerely, when the heat's on and the pressure's on, he wants to turn to God in crisis. And as soon as the crisis just diminishes a little bit, enough to where it's just tolerable, he completely turns his back on, on God and wants nothing to do with God anymore. That's like so many people in our world. You know, when, when life's falling apart, they want God as an insurance policy. They want God as an EMS to come to their rescue when things are falling apart and there's an emergency situation but they don't want to sincerely walk with God. They don't want to sincerely follow God. They just want to ring up 1-800-GOD-HELP-ME in the midst of a crisis. And then as soon as the crisis backs off a little bit, 
they just renege on their commitments, their devotion, their statements of, oh, yeah, I want to follow God, pray, and they just turn around and they go back into the world. And that's a dangerous place to be, dangerous place. We want to serve God all the time, in good, in bad, whether our world's fallen apart or whether our world's wonderful. We want to guard our own hearts from that, that we don't find ourselves doing the same thing. Secondly, let me leave you with this tonight. Take notice that Moses says, I'll pray for you. Verse 31 says that, and the Lord did according to the word of Moses, he removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh. Now, talk about the power of prayer and the fact that God did exactly what Moses asked. To me, this is incredible. The connection that existed between Moses, this man of God and the Lord, that when he prayed and entreated the Lord, the Lord actually answered and did exactly what he said. He prayed, Lord, please have mercy. Take away these flies. Take away this this plague. And the Lord honored the words of Moses. He prayed in accordance with the will of God, and the Lord did exactly what he said. First John tells us that if we ask anything according to God's will, he hears us. And we have what we asked of him. You know, that was incredible encouragement to me to pray specifically and to pray confidently and to believe that God can heed and hear exactly what you ask, and he can do it. You know, Lord... I pray tomorrow at Thanksgiving you would give me an opportunity to talk to about you somehow. I dare you. Pray it. Try it. And see if maybe the Lord opens a door. The fact that God specifically answers our prayers directly and personally. And you want to talk about God's power to resolve a problem. Verse 31, the end of it says, not one fly remained. You remember how many flies were in the land? You would, not one fly remained in the whole land? God, to me, I look at that and I go, wow, when God solves a problem, God solves a problem. You know, people try and solve problems and they may solve it 50% of the way, 75% of the way, 98% of the way. When God solves a problem, he completely rectifies a problem. He is the greatest problem solver that ever exists and that's why he's the one we should turn to in everything and with everything because he has the power to